Welcome back to another episode of the Jewish Moves Podcast. This week's episode is with Rabbi Shlomo Litvin. He's the Chabad Rabbi of Central Kentucky. He's the chairman for the Kentucky Jewish Council and is a national anti-Semitism advocate, as well as many other things. Rabbi Litvin, welcome to the show. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Glad to be here. Thank you for uh, coming on. You know, what was it like growing up in Kentucky? And did you always know you wanted to run a Chabad there? So we talk in the, in the Yiddish Welt about being an in-towner or an out-of-towner. Are you an out-of-towner from Detroit, which has 50,000 years, and you're an out-of-towner from Baltimore, which has 80,000? I was an out-of-towner in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I was the Shemir Shabbos kid I knew. I was the, you know, Shemir Tari Mitzvah kid, only Tissus, only Yarmulke, uh, besides my siblings, which certainly was a, a very different way to grow up. But in a large way, it gave me a tremendous amount of pride in my chesedishkeit, in my frumkeit, uh, people would ask me questions when I was six, seven years old on kashras, on Shabbos. Most of the time I couldn't answer. But they obviously said he, he, he's doing it right. And that was remarkable. Um, I wouldn't say I always knew what I wanted to do. I've wanted to, I, I know the exact moment where I, without a doubt, crystal clear, knew what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I grew up, my father and my mother were sent to Rebbe to Kentucky in the 80s. Uh, my mother grew up the daughter of Rabbi Kahas Weiss and Miriam Weiss, who were legendary shluchim in Pittsburgh, who made the, the yeshiva in Pittsburgh and just are, are like icons in Chabad. My father grew up in Boston. Uh, they met in New York. They lived in New York for a year, and the Rebbe sent him to Kentucky. My father, at one point, the Rebbe instructed him to take, over, to, uh, take a job at a shul, and that's the shul I grew up in. And one of the older members passed away, as one does. And maybe a couple weeks later, maybe a month or two, his wife started. So there was a pounding on my parents' door at three o'clock in the morning. And we all, the kids are curious, three o'clock in the morning, someone's pounding on the door. This looks interesting. And it's this guy's wife. And she's clearly distraught. She seemed unbalanced. She's yelling that her husband didn't come home from Schultz. And clearly, I mean, all the kids, we all remembered him. We all knew that he passed. And my father brought her into the living room. My mother made her a tea. And my father started talking about how much he loved her husband in the present tense. How when we need a minion, he would show up. The kids always love him. He always had, he used to give us the horrible Joyva sesame candies. I don't know if you remember them. You're too young. They're terrible. I don't think they sell them anymore. Horrible. Oh. Anyway, uh, he used to give us these terrible candies. He always had a smile and a joke. And slowly over about an hour, my father changed from, I love your husband, to I miss your husband. And she changed with him. And my, my mother had called her daughter who took care of her. And by the time she was ready to go home, she was sad, but she was normal. She was irrational. She was a person that I knew. And to me, it looked like a magic trick. A person came to my, my parents' house, clearly disturbed. To me, I mean, I didn't know words then. I didn't know dementia. I, I, I'm crazy. She was crazy. A crazy person knocked on our door and two, three hours later left our house normal. And I remember my sister, uh, my, my best friend was my sister because she was also Shemr Shabbos and Shemr Tarimitzvah. She went to bed. My parents went there and my father w- woke up to go to Mikvah and learn Chesidus before Shachars at 6 a.m. I was still sitting on the steps staring at the living room. And from that moment on, I've never wanted to do anything besides do magic in people's lives. Wow, it's uh, really impressive. It's uh, an amazing story. Well, when you decide you want to become a shliach, what, what, what's the process like? What did it take? So the process is different for, uh, depending on the place. 
the Rebbe, from a very early time, had already saw what the world was going to need way before anyone could have predicted Chabad being the largest and most vibrant movement in Judaism. And he sort of set up a franchise system where one person is responsible, or a pair of people, a husband and wife, are responsible for an area. And shliach eise shliach, how you find someone who's looking to hire. So there's someone who's responsible for California and someone who's responsible for Russia and, and, and uh, China and the Far East and Africa, wherever it is. So someone who has the requisite skills and the drive and passion to do shlichus has to find someone who's looking for a position. So I was throughout yeshiva looking for opportunities of where I could hone my skills. So Lubavitch yeshiva is a very big mitzvah, taking time out of your personal time to help other yidin do mitzvahs. Tefillin, uh, Neshek, Anyamtif, uh, Meneiras, and then Harry Scheifer. I'm blessed that my grandfather was a nationally renowned trumpet player and also in Elul and Tishrei Scheifer player. Um, so I grew up about Takeya from a very young age. By Bermitzvah, everybody, I knew exactly how to blow Scheifer. Um, so regularly when I was a Bacher over, over a Shunyim Kippur, I'd blow 10,000 times a Scheifer. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and I was working as a bacher, unmarried, and there was a young woman on a campus in central Kentucky who needed a, a mezuzah. So I was asked if I could drive a mezuzah and deliver it. So I delivered a mezuzah, and she mentioned that she and her roommate are Jewish, and there's no Jewish programs for young people in Lexington. So I arranged a program for Hanukkah. I came back and gave out menorahs, and there was a couple kids interested. And then right before Purim, I came back and talked about Purim, and there was a more kids interested. And I wrote a letter, and I said they should really, I mean, it's a, it's a small community, it's, it's not a booming metropolis, but it seems like there's a need for a shliach here. Um, a couple months later, Shavuos, I, uh, a couple days after Shavuos, I went out with my wife for the first time, we just passed our anniversary of when we met, and that night I called my best friend, told him come to New York, I'm getting married. It took a little while to convince her, but I, uh, 30 minutes in, I was in, Soon after, we were looking for what we want to do. Both of us were committed to the Rebbe Zinyanim and to helping other Jews. My father, in his classic humor, sent me the letter that I had written to, seven, to, to 302 and 770 and to the Hedshliach that said they desperately need someone in Lexington. And he wrote the quote that Moshe Rabbeinu says to Pinchas. When Pinchas comes to Moshe and says there's something wrong going on in the camp, Moshe says to Pinchas, why don't you solve it then? If you see a problem, you should fix it. Um, so I applied for the job and I went to meet with some of the local people and my wife and I jumped in, uh, head first. That's pretty cool. And, uh, what are some of the things you do on a weekly basis with your, uh, different, uh, rabbinical roles? So I'm the only road for 90 miles in any direction. So a week can be radically different depending on the week. Uh, this week I sat with a yid who was in his last moments, was able to help him with Shema and Vidui. Uh, I did a, last week I had a Mace Mitzvah. Uh, I, I, arrange, I don't do Brissim myself, but I arrange Brissim. And then on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm also on campus. S still the one place that people are ideally looking and learning and looking for new experiences. I strongly believe that if a 18-year-old Yid comes to campus not having access to his Jewish identity, the town he's from failed him. They missed out on part of what should have been his education. And if he leaves campus without knowing anything about Yiddishkeit, his campus failed him. Because a campus is supposed to make a well-rounded person. 
So I do tabling on campus. And then I also uh, work in Frankfurt a couple hours a week or many hours a week, depending on the time of year, whether it's advocating for Yudin in Yisrael, advocating for Yudin in Kentucky. Uh, Frankfurt is the state capital where I serve as chaplain in the state house. And uh, I mean, every day it's totally different. Uh, I wake up, Baruch Hashem, uh, go to Mikvah on the lake, Davin Shachris, try to get my email to below 10 emails left in my in inbox, and then just conquer the day, but it's totally different every day. Wow. And uh, as you mentioned, you do a lot of different things. You know, some, some of the previous guests, you know, not, not in as serious way of you, but they, they sometimes go from Klumsitzes to upbeat bar mitzvahs or weddings, you know, so someone like you, where one day you might be uh, helping someone in their last moments, and then the next day you might be helping someone put on a pair of tefillin or put up a mezuzah and going a long distance to buy kosher food in the meantime. How do you, how do you transition from the highs to the lows and make sure that you don't get stuck in uh, either of them? It's a great question. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to sit with someone, someone you care about, someone you love, another Jew, and not take that home with you. Um, Baruch Hashem, I'm blessed with an amazing Ashish Chayil and six wonderful kids. Uh, I try to include my children, their shlichas, as much as possible because they're very much a part of it. But there's a lot of stuff I don't want to take home. And more than that, I don't want to take from one person to another. If I'm going from uh, doing my bigger chaylum run, which is something I do all the time, to meeting with a senator, I don't want to bring that attitude into a meeting. And to me, the, the, the icker for me is if it's me doing it, I could be upset. If I'm doing it as number one, and number two, as a facilitator, as connecting someone to their Yiddishkeit, then my, my point of view, my happiness, my sadness doesn't play in. So I can deal with my emotions when I have time for myself, but I'm on the clock as it were. So when I'm working, I try to compartmentalize as much as possible. If I'm advocating for something, I'm advocating now. If I'm sitting with someone, I'm sitting now. The, the Rebbe had this amazing ability, almost unhuman ability, to focus on one person. Nearly everyone you, talk, you, you read and, and listen to who talks about meeting with the Rebbe, talks about the Rebbe's singular focus on them. And again, the Rebbe was someone who had shluchim all over the world, who was responsible for maestas all over the world, who had his own responsibilities as a Rebbe. But when he was speaking to you, it felt like you were the only person in the world. It's, it's hard for me to replicate that. It's hard for anybody to replicate that. Uh, but that idea to focus right now on what I'm focusing on is something I strive very deeply for. Wow, it sounds like a really uh, challenging and intense uh, mission, but you seem to be handling it well. Uh, I, I'll ask one more question about your role with Chabad before we transition to some of the many other things you do. I'm curious if, if you find that there's a category or, or representation of, of Chabad Shulchan that you feel is uh, incorrect, that you wish people would understand differently. What a great question. Um, one thing only. If you really want to, you can do two. Um, some of the biggest misconceptions about Shluchim. Number one, there's this idea that they're all funded out of 770. That there's a money machine in the bottom of 770 just printing out hundreds, and they're being sent in giant pallets all over the world. While the, the support 
emotional, mental, spiritual, and, and guidance teaching we get from the central offices is incredible. Uh, the idea that there's central financial funding simply isn't true. The other thing I wish more people understood is while I absolutely love Zarchim, it's one of my favorite mitzvahs, and when I have a from in town, I'm super excited. If he wants to, to learn uh, Tanya, I'm happy to sit down and learn. If he wants to join me for a meal, there are many people who seem to think that one of the main things I do is kosher catering for someone on vacation. Um, and I'm happy to make someone a meal if they need kosher food. But uh, I don't have a restaurant in my house. And if you call me at noon, it's rare that I'll have a food ready at 1230. Uh, so that is, is two things I wish more people understood. Wow, those seem like uh, important things we should uh, pay attention to. And uh, another thing you do is you have an official role in combating anti-Semitism. What inspired you to do that? And what exactly is it as well? So number one, I grew up in a different environment than many. And I had interactions with people that most many Jews don't have, particularly as an outwardly appearing from person in a place where there are very few. Statistically in America today, the most likely person to be the victim of a violent hate crime is a uh, from Jew. An outwardly appearing Jew is the most likely person to be the victim of a violent hate crime in America, and it has been for the last decade. And that's Meshuggah. Uh, I grew up in the early 90s in the wake of the Crown Heights riots, the Sharpton pogroms in Crown Heights, when Jews in America had to hide in their homes in fear of Sharpton's mob going down the street, attacking people. When people generally talk about anti-Semitism, they talk about the past, where they just talk about the Holocaust. But anti-Semitism wasn't a five-year issue in the 40s. It's something we have to deal with. We see it incredibly now because hate in general, but especially anti-Semitism is the language of radicals. And as we've seen both across the world and in America, politics get more partisan on both sides, more radical on both sides. The language of hate is used a lot more and people need to speak up. So I kind of fell into this role because I was the only person there. We had a series of events uh, two years ago, Hanukkah. We had the BHI attack in Jersey City and the Nation of Islam attack in uh, Muncie. And I reached out to people across Kentucky and I said that there's, there's national marches going on all over. We should do something. And I was written back, it's not a Kentucky issue. It's not our problem. So I said, it is our problem. It's Yidin being attacked. And I decided I was going to do something. I set up a event in the center of the city. And Baruch Hashem, there was a tremendous response. People came out. Uh, my congressman, Andy Barr, who's a tremendous friend of the Jewish community, joined me at the event. Uh, other groups jumped on as sponsors. And more and more, I realized there needed to be a louder voice. Uh, I've been able to work to mandate Holocaust education in public schools in Kentucky to help with an anti-BDS law to stop anti-Semitic attacks on Israel in three states now, Kentucky and two of our bordering states. Kentucky last year became the first state to adopt the IRA definition, a proper definition of anti-Semitism. Wow. So there's a definition under statute. Um, and just to do what I can 
to stand with other Yidden, be they in Kentucky or around the world. Sound like really incredible things. And uh, I guess we uh, commend you for your work and uh, success as well, not just the work. Um, uh, the way I, I found you and that so many people find you is on social media. We're on Twitter. You have over 15,000 tweets, both on serious topics and humorous topics. And you're also known as the clubhouse rabbi, having been taken down, but then being reinstated. Where, where did you find the, I guess, the inspiration or motivation to join social media and, and work through there? And what, what is it that you do on Clubhouse that you find so important? So every social network I, I am on, I've been dragged on kicking and screaming. Um, my wife told me I need to get Facebook when we first moved out to Kentucky, and I do whatever she says. And it has been a tremendous tool to reach people, especially in smaller communities. We have one, two yidin in a city. Um, there's one city I visited where I'm pretty sure the family I visit are the only Yidin in a city of 10,000 people. Uh, I went to another city where I did a Leviah for the last Jew in the city. And they told me that Jeff was the last Jew left and uh, now, now we're out. So to be able to reach these people, social media has been incredible. And especially during COVID, when our students could gather far less, I got way more into social media. Particularly, I got into Clubhouse. A student said it's a great way for classes. Now there's over 20 hours of Jewish programming on Clubhouse and a tremendous amount of combating anti-Semitism, uh, defending Yidin, teaching Rambam every day, Chumash every day. Uh, there's Tanya classes every day. It's amazing what, what's going on there now. And Twitter, both interacting with from people, which is kind of like I have a base medrash where I can both learn and talk and uh, one of the highlights of my day every day, there's a phenomenal artist named Milan Block on Twitter. Uh, part of my daily routine now is after I'm done checking my emails, I reward myself by going on his Twitter so I can see what new artwork he has for the day. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Anyone ever looking to get me a gift, it's a great place to start. Um, and uh, schmoozing with people about the latest things in Yiddishkeit and also explaining things that are going on to a lot of my students both in a humorous way. I, I made a tweet last year uh, for Hanukkah, a Hanukkah meme, classic meme that I updated, and it says, uh, excellent Jewish woman and cutting off Greek generals' heads. And it's the same picture, like it's the same thing. And it got tweeted by Lahav Harkov, who is one of the best reporters ever covering Israel. And from her, it got retweeted by Ben Shapiro. And probably hundreds of people messaged me about that tweet, students, and they said, explain the tweet to me. And these are kids who grew up celebrating Hanukkah in their synagogues or temples, but had never heard of Yehudas. Uh, the, the idea, sure, there was Judah Maccabee and he fought against the Greeks and whatever, but the idea that there's a story there and it's a story of our people, the story of Yehudas, the story of Hanukkah, what the meaning of Hanukkah is, that it's more than colored candles on the windowsill. It, it opened that conversation. So humor has a tremendous ability to do that, uh, even through silly things like memes, and also a tremendous amount of educational stuff about what's going on in Israel, what's going on in the Jewish community in, in America. Often I'll, I'll retweet a story or share a story of something going on in New York. Uh, there was just, uh, BMG just had their, their Warriors of Tyra event. And one of my students said, I didn't realize there were that many religious Jews in America. I'm like, that's one town. Um, so being able to share that with people and having so many resources online to share from I, uh, has been just incredible. And there's been lots and lots of good conversations. 
I have a student who I met on Clubhouse. Um, Jewish mother, non-Jewish father, didn't have much relationship with their Jewish identity growing up. We started learning together on Clubhouse. It spread to learning over other things. And Baruch Hashem, she got engaged this week to a from guy. She's in seminary in Eretz Yisrael now. And I got on Clubhouse a year and a half ago. So that's a, a journey that she took over 18 months. That's amazing. To build her relationship with Yiddishkeit. Um, so the, the power of social media has been absolutely amazing to be able to reach people. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs famously said that the same way that Yidin were once tracked down with hate, the Rebbe wanted to track down every single Jew with love. And for a large part, social media helps to do that. That's very nice. And I guess I'll ask uh, one more question before the final question. So uh, I know you're a chaplain for the Kentucky State House. What, what exactly is that? And how do you advise people when the common belief is not a Judaism? So number one, I advise members of the House and Senate on religious issues. I lead prayers in the House and Senate often, which I'll share on social media. And when religious issues come up, whether it's about Jewish education, whether it's about Eretz Yisrael, uh, I'm, I'm able to be there and explain the Jewish perspective. Uh, this year in Kentucky, we had several incidents. Someone stood up and said that Jews should be treated differently under the law because she read an article about the Jewish view on abortion. I said, was the article more than a page? She said, no. I said, then you don't know the Jewish view on abortion. Um, we live in an age where those who have not been educated on our community will read a tweet and be like, oh, well, I read 120 words. I now understand Yiddishkeit. When anyone who has a basic understanding of Yiddishkeit knows how beautifully complex halacha is, how specific it is to people and situations. And it's often not a tweetable answer. So being able to be there, um, being able to be there for, for high points for, for members of the House and Senate. We had a race recently in Kentucky that was horribly anti-Semitic where uh, uh, Yid was running for office. And the person running against them put out a flyer with a little kid praying on the front of it. And it said, don't let them take our election. Um, to be with him during that election and, and express support from the Jewish community, to rally the community support, and then to be with him afterwards. And he won, Baruch Hashem. And to be able to, to, to give him chizuk is an incredible thing. For a house member to say, a congressman calls me, he says, I want to support Eretz Yisrael. What can I do? Uh, I want to support the Eden in, in our state. What's the Jewish view on education? What's the Jewish view on... Now, again, most of these things are not... Well, sure, let, let me text it in, in two minutes. But to hear another perspective is something that's incredibly powerful and is uniquely American. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when describing the American government, said it's the role of leaders to uplift segments of the community and thereby ensure the flourishing of the whole. It's a uniquely American idea that we're not weaker because we're different, we're stronger because of it. That every community that adds to the American experience makes America stronger. When we don't have one of those voices, the community suffers. So we have to provide a Yiddish voice to say, you know, this is a point of view. Someone came to me and said that, what's the Jewish view on Hebrews, which is a book of the Geisha scripture? Uh, I'm like, we don't have a view on it. It's not our book. And that had never occurred to him, which again, coming from a different perspective, coming from a different background, a different education, that we just, it's, it's not something I read. And it's incredibly powerful to be able to share that with people. Wow. And uh, I guess we'll conclude now. And it's uh, one of the sadder conclusions, I guess, to any of the episodes, because I didn't realize how much you have to share and uh, how exciting it is. It's definitely been one of the 
more interesting episodes for me and enlightening episodes. The last question of the, the podcast is uh, the same for every episode, which is you're involved in uh, Kentucky and you have uh, people asking all different types of questions, basic questions, complex questions. On social media, you get different types of questions. But even though you're getting so many questions, there's always questions people do not get, which they wish they did. So looking back at all the questions you received, can you tell us a question you've never received, which you wish you did, and what answer you would give to it? What's well, a question I never got and wish I did? That's a great question. I've never gotten this question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, while I'm thinking, I'll tell you the hardest question I ever got. Uh, at my Shabbos meals, I often have a student who visits their first time at a Shabbos meal, their first time talking to a, a, a Jew wearing a yarmulke. And I say, ask me anything. And one student actually stumped me because most answers, they ask questions about why is Shabbos tired of this, that, or I either know or I can give an explanation and say, let's learn it together more. He said, which character in the Torah, which person do you most identify with? Who do you feel most embodies you? And I had never thought about that before. I actually had to think about an answer. Um, what is a question I never get? Um, I never get tired of talking about Jewish history, of talking about the, the remarkable story and the miraculous story of Jewish survival. Um, tell me about your grandfather. Tell me about how your family, tell me about how my family, tell me about how you didn't move to America. Uh, really, any question, just tell me about Jewish history. Let's talk about Jewish history. Let's talk about the remarkable story, especially in the last 150 years. The miracle of Yiddishkeit being in America, the miracle of Lakewood, of Crown Heights, of Borough Park, of New Square, and of Chabad houses all across America is to me one of the most interesting topics in the world. And uh, I'll tell you one question that recently I said I wish someone would ask me. I mentioned earlier uh, Elon Block. He put out a, a beautiful painting. I don't know if it's from a real picture, if it's from a conversation that should have happened, but it's Adin Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz talking to Jonathan Sachs, two remarkable Jewish leaders of the last 70 years. And I shared a quote from both of them about their relationship with their Rebbe, where uh, Evan Yisrael said that all, all my life I thought I was a, a duck, and the Rebbe explained to me that I'm an eagle and taught me how to soar. And Jonathan Sachs said, most great leaders create followers, and remarkable leaders, revolutionary leaders create leaders. And those two different perspectives of how the Rebbe changed them and impacted them and made them who they are is something that I could fabring about for hours. And I shared it on, on Twitter and I actually shared it. And I said, I wish someone would ask me about this and still no one did. Um, but I could talk about Jewish history forever. I could talk about Heskashris forever. Uh, this might be a little self-centered, self but I could talk about my family's history forever, which is something I'm particularly, of course, emotionally involved in. Um, and just how everything ties back to Tyra, everything ties back to, to Eberster is something I love to talk about. Wow, very nice answer, very nice answers for everything. Before we end, do you want to mention anything else or a way people could get in touch or social media platforms to follow you on? So I'm easy to find on uh, most social media, at Bluegrass Rabbi. Uh, on TikTok, I do Hasidish puppet shows every few days, which is something I started during COVID. 
Uh, if you want to, within three minutes, learn a Hasidic story through puppets, um, I'm uh, on, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, fa Facebook, Clubhouse. And please ma ma message me, ask me a question, interact. I'd love to learn together, talk together, and uh, talk about Davis. Right. And for you, if there's ever follow-up questions you have, either on, on the podcast or just if I bring in, I'm in. Thank you for listening to this past episode of the Jews Schmooze podcast. To get our latest updates and contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at Jews underscore schmooze. If you want to sponsor an upcoming episode, you can reach out to JewsSchmoozMarketing at gmail.com. And if you give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on, that will be tremendously appreciated. Thank you so much, and hope you're looking forward to the next episode also. Thank you.